This is Radiance Tape Number JD-134, a message by Jim Durkin, entitled, Taking Command of Your Soul. The point that I've always tried to make in studying the subject of soul training is this, that if you will make any search of Scripture at all, you will see in there, or any look at humanity as a whole, and you will see that mankind is literally torn apart. Not only are we separated from each other, and so therefore we suffer loneliness and guilt and sorrow and many other things because we are separated. I've seen at times husband and wife loving each other deep in their hearts, and yet certain things were said between them, and a wall was built between them. And here, though, they yearn for the company of each other, they yearn for the sympathy and understanding with each other, yet, in fact, a wall had been built between them, and they could hardly even speak to each other. But the problem does not only exist between ourselves and others, but it also exists within ourselves so that we find ourselves divided within ourselves. We find ourselves divided into three warring segments. That aspect of us which is our reasoning intellectual mind, and it sometimes comes up with an idea, and that aspect of us which is our emotional mind, it comes up with quite different ideas. And these two war against each other, and then there is that aspect of us, which is that spiritual mind, which sometimes is in war against the other two parts, and we find ourselves divided. Now, the purpose, then, of God's Word and God's Spirit given to us is to bring us so that spirit, soul, and body, we are a unity. And we've spoken about this many times, that man needs certain unities in his life to be able to function properly. First of all, he needs a unity between himself and his God. This is produced by the Lord Jesus Christ. When he gives his heart to Jesus Christ, Jesus, the mediator between God and man, the Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The eternal Father in his Son reconciling the world through his Son to himself. So that a man would come into unity between his Maker and himself. Now, second thing a man needs is unity between himself and his fellow man, that is, at least his brothers, his family, so that he needs essential unity between himself and his wife. It says that we're not to be bitter at our wives or quarrel with them or so forth, make sure these things are quickly made up, lest your prayers be hindered. Many of us, our prayers are hindered because we have no proper relationship with our spouses at home. Wives are angry against their husbands, husbands angry against their wives, bitterness and the wall that I'm speaking about. We get down to pray and say, Lord, I desire this to help me here. The Bible says our prayers are hindered. Now, we need unity with our brethren in the church. And this is a vast area that needs to be explored and conquered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the 17th chapter of John, along with the 13th chapter of John, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Now, why do I not love people? I desire to love them, but something about their traits irritate me, or something about their life threatens me, or something about their status in life makes me envious or jealous or something... So that whereas I desire to do what God wants me to do, but something comes in and my emotional nature takes off and says, Oh, my, they have no right to be that way. And my reasoning mind says, Oh, I see. And, and this war goes on. Now, my body is the victim of this war. So that at times I feel exhausted, my head aches, my back aches, my legs are tired. David even speaks about such things as my bones were troubled. Have you ever experienced that? Have you been so tired? You just said there's a tiredness. It is all the way through me. My bones are tired. Yes, I've experienced that kind of tiredness. It's because of this tremendous, <clears throat> like this, going on. So the Bible tells us that... 
a new commandment I give you, love one another, and by this shall all men know you are my disciples because you love one another. Now, I'm speaking about not a mystical thing, but a very practical relationship. In other words, it's speaking about somebody by the name of Jim Durkin in this particular body, in this particular life, loving you. And it means you loving me. And you looking at each other and saying, yes, I love you. See, And that becomes a practical outworking of our life. And the Bible says, as that takes place, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, because you love one another. Now, it goes on further than this, that Jesus prayed in the 17th chapter of John. He said that they all may be one, as we are one, that the world may believe that you have sent me, Father. And he's praying to his Father. He said, Lord, that the world may believe this, and that the world may know that you have loved them, the church, even as you have loved me. Now, that's a profound aim or goal of God. Another place we're discussing some of these things in the minister's meeting this morning, saying that God is determined to demonstrate his manifold wisdom to the powers and principalities, be the angelic powers and so forth, I assume the fallen ones as well as those who are totally following God's pattern. But he said to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God through the church. Well, here, it means that these angels and powers and principalities are to look on the church and say, look at that, this marvelous, infinite wisdom and love of God has been poured out on the church. He has given them the name of His Son. The Son has given them the glory which He had before the world was. And now look at these diverse humans with all of their different backgrounds, everything Satan has tried to do to them, everything the demonic hosts have tried to lie and deceive their minds. But look at it. In spite of all that warfare, here they have come victoriously to love one another, care for one another, walk with one another, lay down their lives for each other. This is the manifold wisdom of God demonstrated. See? Now, when we speak about soul training, then, we're not speaking about some light thing. We're speaking about something that will enable you, once you have practiced along these lines, enable you not to love those who merely happen to be compatible in love matters with you. See, some people, it's easy to love them because they essentially are the same way you are. In other words, maybe I like sailboating, they like sailboating. And I like doing needlepoint work, they like doing needlepoint work. And I like running and jogging. I'm trying to think of all the things I don't really like exactly. <laughs> Especially that last one. But I like jogging, and you happen to like jogging, and why? We say, oh, man, I just see the love of God working in my heart. We just go jogging, we go sailboat, we get together, we talk about needlepoint, and oh, it's so wonderful to be there. But what do you do when you get together with a brother who says, you come up and say, I like needlepoint. He says, needlepoint? <laughs> needlepoint. Do you hear that joke? Needlepoint. What else do you do? Do you crochet, too? See? <laughs> Now, it takes something more than what it takes now is a trained soul. <laughs> All right. Now, the principles then that we're speaking about are to bring that condition about. Now, reading here then from 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, we see how Paul spoke about this. And this is the 1 Corinthians 9 chapter. And he speaks in the 19th verse, he is free from all men, yet he's made himself the servant unto all that he might gain the more. See, his whole mind is set toward the purpose of God, the vision of God. Now he says, unto the Jews, I became as a Jew. See, now that took an effort on his part because he'd been far removed from that kind of mentality, though he could remember it. But it'd be just like saying to the Chicagoans, I became a Chicagoan. Even though I came from Chicago, it would be very difficult for me to go back to the place where I was born on the west side in a real slum area. It'd be very difficult for me to go back now and relate to those people at the level where they are. And I don't mean compromising the morality which Christ has placed within me, but I mean just even to relate to that kind of thinking, that kind of word patterns. But Paul said to the Jews, I became a Jew. 
Now, he had a well-trained ability to move himself and say, I will be like this now. To them that are under the laws, under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now notice the ability he had to change himself for the purpose of bringing about the will of God among the body of Christ and among the unsaved. See, that business of unity, he knew how to move toward them to produce that unity, even though he had to change many things about himself. And this I do for the gospel's sake. Now, notice the reason, though, that I might be partaker thereof with you. He wanted to do everything he possibly could to build the work. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. He said, don't, don't play around. He said, know your goal. Say, that I'm running in that hundred yard dash, or I'm running in the so many meter race, or I'm running in the... He said, know what you're doing. Set yourself for it and say, I'm going to run that race. Now he said, if you're determined to do that, he says, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beat at the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, it doesn't mean cast off from God. It means simply like a cracked pot or not usable in the highest and best order that he could be. Whereas in other places it says, in any great house are many kinds of vessels, gold and silver, wood vessels, and so forth. It says, if any man will purge himself from these, he shall become a vessel unto honor. He spoke about some are vessels unto honor, some unto dishonor, menial use. He said, if you purge yourself. Now here again is this same thing Paul's saying. He said, I don't leave myself where I find myself. I determine that I'm in a race. I'm running to win. I'm determined to obtain the highest possible prize, the approbation of my Lord. See, I mean, I know there are rewards in heaven, you crowns and so forth. And so That's not it. What Paul wanted to hear was, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. And so he, as I run, he says, not as one that beats the air. But he said, I train myself. I bring that body under. Because he said, I'm running in a deadly serious race. I want to bring you that mentality where you also know you are running in a deadly serious race. Not you're merely going to church, you're hearing sermons, or you come to a Wednesday night and say, oh, that's very interesting teaching. But somebody up here by the name of James Durkin is saying to you, I tell you we're in a race. I tell you that there is a goal laid out before us from God. I tell you there's something we are moving toward, a destiny that the Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those that love him. But it says his spirit has revealed them unto us. He's saying, do you know that by your natural mind you would never even begin to conceive of the glory that God has prepared for you? Now, he said his spirit's revealed them. Now Paul said, move toward that. Move toward it with deliberation. Move toward it with intelligence. Move toward it with courage. Move toward it with determination. Let nothing stop you from that movement. Now, we're not talking about salvation again. I'm saying the highest and best that God has for you and I. That's what we're moving toward. See? Okay. Now then, let's take a look at what we have here. Finish this up. Laid that down because the first thing here, you remember last week I spoke to you about submitting yourself to godly authority. I hope you've meditated upon that, searched it out in the Word of God, said Scripture, obey them that have the rule over you. See, in this American mentality, we don't like that concept at all. We say, nobody's got the rule over me. I do what I please. Well, of course, on the face of it, that's foolish. We don't really do what we please. We never do. You know, I go down a road at a certain speed and I'm going 35 miles an hour, and suddenly here's a sign that says 25, and I don't merely say, huh, nobody's got the rule over me. 
Either I do one of two things. I immediately slow down to 25, or I look around, see if anybody's there who might help me slow down. See, I, you know, see, something like that. No, Bible says obey every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So I bring that thing under. See, Paul says bring it under. Okay. Now, so there's rule that exists always, but what kind of rule are we to submit to, the whole of rule that we're to submit to, which brings us into that glorious place where we obtain that prize for which God has set us aside for? Well, one, of course, we submit to the rulers of the land as a testimony to God that we obey every order of man for the Lord's sake. But our citizenship is in heaven. There's a whole different system of rule for our sake. And the Bible says, submit yourself to those. They watch for your souls. They watch over you. But see, it's not enough to merely go to church and say, I hear sermons. There has to come a relationship with that person that God has raised up among you. And those persons which then become like an eldership and the deaconship. That these men become trained... They're set there by God to watch over your soul. They're set there by God to counsel you. They're set there by God to guide you. But you have to yourself individually come and say, Brothers, I want you to guide me. I want you to train me. I want you to show me what I need to do. All right. So the Bible says, get that in mind then. Obey them that have the rule over you. But now, you cannot shift the responsibility, as some have done, to some kind of a shepherding concept or a discipling concept. And we say, I have no responsibility for my life. It's totally in the hands of my shepherd. Well, of course, that's not true either. I can never shift the responsibility for my life into the hands of anyone else. There is a part that I must play in that process, that cooperation with the divine that we're speaking about tonight, soul training. But here is a point I call it discipline or self-control. Now, the Bible says, add to all of these virtues, which are spoken of in the Bible, and always gets around to one. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, and it's one of the things in Second Peter says, add to your faith virtue, your virtue, brother, love, son. and to all of them what? Self-control. See, so there's a, an ability we have to say, no, no, I will not do that. See, many of us say, I just couldn't say no. Well, I just didn't know how to. Well, I heard a sermon one time, and I said, do you know how to overcome all temptation? I think he simplified it too much. Guarantee you'll never sin again. And, you know, I was immediately listening. Like, yeah, what is the answer? Here, what's going to come? He said, say no, that's all, you know. And, uh, <laughs> of course, that's not always the easiest thing to do. That's the matter that we're speaking about, the ability to say no. Okay, now that brings us then to the area of discipline or self-control, and it includes submitting to God's training or chastening. Now, would you please turn with me to Hebrews 12, 5 to 13. And you're going to see that suffering plays a real part in the development of man. Now, that's why you'll often hear me speak whenever I do about the danger of a need-oriented theology. The theology should be God-oriented, and then human needs will be met. But we must see that our lives must be shaped Godward, and then as a result of our lives changing Godward, needs are met. It isn't the other way around, like when all my needs are met, then I will begin to really live for God. It's the other way around. I set my heart to live for God, and then needs are met. All right, now Hebrews, the 12th chapter, and we'll start with verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Now I have been rebuked by the Lord in my lifetime on several occasions. And I say it, dear friends, it is not a pleasant experience. It's pleasant later on when he yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. But it is not pleasant at the time that that rebuke is going on. There are times that God has had to stop me short, sometimes of sin. Sometimes I stubbornly have pursued a course of sin, 
until I came to the end of myself, and I'm sure that it would have been terrible destruction ahead of me. And then the Eternal Father spoke a sharp rebuke to me. I understand what David said when he spoke about his flesh and his bones dried up, because that's what it felt like. I felt like the end of my time had certainly come, and yet I did not want to die either. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and notice the wording here, scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now, that's heavy-duty talk. See, I would much rather think of the Lord just putting his arm around me and saying, Now, Jim, you know that isn't nice. And most of the time, praise the Lord, that's all he has to do, is really just put his arms around me and say, that isn't right. Stop. Or sometimes the Holy Spirit is able just to touch me in the inner part of my being and say, Oh, I say, oh God, no. Lord, forgive me. I Forgive me. See, begin to walk right again. But there are times in my lifetime that I have not heard that gentle touch. There are times in my lifetime I have not heard the admonition of those who had the rule over me. There are times in my lifetime I have not listened to the Word of God as it spoke to me, and sometimes would literally leap off the page and say, mm, mm, say, didn't I hear that? And I went on. And then this merciful, loving God, because I truly was a son of God, he took me and he scourged me. And it was not just whack my seat. Scourging means something else more than that. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons, for what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? See? Now, if our minds are set to say, well, yes, chastening is a part of God's dealing with man. He deals with us that way. And we say, well, God never does anything bad to you, only the devil does that. Well, no, there's certain things, if you're talking about things that are bad. But chastening is not bad. Chastening is good. See, that's done by a loving father, the same as an earthly father would do. When I chastened my sons or daughter, when they were growing up, though I was foolish and ignorant, but what I did was not bad. And the ultimate result was they moved themselves around into a place, finally, where they began to walk with God. And they said that it was the things you taught us, the things you stopped us from doing. We don't know what we would have done if you had not taken a firm hand with us at certain points in our life. Chastening. They wish to go. I say, cannot do that. See? Well, now, God, mercifully, when I'm moving far off the course and I'm not hearing anymore, he is able to take this son of the living God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and he is able to scourge me, he is able to chasten me, he is able to rebuke me, even though, like David, my bones feel dried up within me, and I'm saying, oh, wow, what's going on here? I know what's going on, but see, I, I wish to avoid it, and finally I come to that place, I say, Almighty God, have your way in my life totally. But if you be without chastisement, Whereof all are partakers, then are ye illegitimate or bastards, and not sons at all. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence as a result of them correcting us. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. If we have a need-oriented theology alone, the thought is that at all times we will be outwardly joyful. Well, scripturally, that is not correct. At all times I could be outwardly joyful, because if I would learn to judge myself beforehand and make proper judgments about my operations in life, if I constantly learn to sow good seed and proper seed, for the most part, my life would express joy. Although, they who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, and therefore that might produce in me a kind of heaviness for a time. But it will never remove the inner joy. But David, after he had sinned against God, said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. See, either his salvation was in jeopardy, 
Or perhaps what he meant there, it is the joy which is completely gone. There's some inner something which says, God exists and he's a rewarder than the diligently seeking. I'm a son of God and these are my brothers and sisters and I'm... But now when he sinned, something just dried up within him like that. I said, the joy of my salvation is gone. Oh, God, purge me, cleanse me, change me, transform me. And then finally, toward the end of his days, he referred to himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Restoration, great ministry again, and he had learned his lesson was moving forward in God. All right, now, no chasing for the present seems joyous, but grievous, painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness, unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Well, now, have you ever felt that after chastening by the Lord? And sometimes you can even feel that after chastening, the minister is simply ministering the Word of God. And while you just, it's kind of getting to you, and man, you get up and say, oh, 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 brought to the church, kind of. But afterwards, you're exercised by it. You say, I'm going to do that. And then a little bit of transformation takes place. Next thing, you're moving right along. All right, now. B, understanding the part suffering plays. Suffering is essential to your growth as a Christian. See, when we're talking about soul training, we mean taking me away from something my soul is oriented toward doing and it desires to do and saying to it, no, you can no longer do that. We are going to do this. All right, now, there's a part then, when that's going on, that suffering is the result. And look at Philippians 1.29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. All right, now, not only to believe on him. See, that's the easy part. But also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Now, other scriptures bring out the same exact point, but let's take a look at 2 Timothy 2.12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, many times, not understanding this principle and the one that goes before it, many times we will find ourselves endlessly going on desiring more and more counsel, which has a proper place and we really don't understand it. But after we understand that principle of suffering, we can begin to handle suffering so it no longer is a thing that distorts our mind or throws us into a, a fit of despair. It's just something we say, it's all right. Praise God. I know the truth. I know that I'm a son of God. I know that I've been filled with the Spirit. I know that I'm walking according to the Word in the best way I can. And if there's something here that I need to know differently, the Lord will reveal this to me. We're no longer distraught. As, oh, I'm suffering. Doesn't mean I'm, we're no longer distraught at that. We say, all right, I understand. The way God works here, see. All right. James 5.10. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Not speaking of suffering in a bad way at all. It says rejoice when you fall into manifold temptations, knowing that these things work a greater work within you. 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. Then I'm going to come back to verse 1, but I'll read 13, 14 first. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, and of course you are too, as a result of that, but on your part he is glorified. Now look at verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. He's talking about suffering in the flesh. Because he had no sin. That was not the reason he suffered. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. A clear statement of Scripture that suffering is a very real part of that transformation 
from the little baby Christian who any little thing touches him and he just falls right over. He's virtually able to handle no temptation at all, very little thing, until the place the Bible says where you've suffered in the flesh, you cease from sin. So he's talking about coming to a place where we become strong and these things are not able to move us one way or another. And now, 5.10, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while. Now here's this tremendous connection with suffering and something else. After that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, do you see scripturally a connection between self-control, training, discipline, suffering, as a part of God's whole work to perfect you? Now, you see, if we say, well, I'm just not going to go in for that at all. I don't want any suffering at all. Well, you see, then that perfecting work will not take place. We will constantly be moving toward keeping ourselves free of any possible hassles. If witnessing produces a hassle, we'll say, well, I'm not going to witness. See? Or if prayer produces a hassle, like I was telling you you get down pray and you get your mind quiet, here's all these crazy thoughts going through, you say, I'm not going to do that, man, that's terrible. I'd rather get up and look at TV because then this thing is coming to me, I don't think these thoughts anymore, see? All right, then we'll move away from those hassles. Or if coming to church produces a hassle, or you're in a particular thing and maybe the elders are dealing with you in a particular way and saying, now, Jim Durkin, there's something in your life that you need to look at here. There's an operation here. It's, it's a sinful thing. Your heart's not where it should be. Look at what you're doing with your wife. Look at what you're doing with your children. Look at what you say, man, I'm not going to go through that. I'm going to find some other place. See? And so we keep running instead of saying, no, suffering is part and parcel of God's work. Training the soul produces suffering. There is a chastening of God, which is essential to my life. It's a good thing when my minister or the elders will speak to me and say, Jim Durkin, we care for you enough, we love you enough to tell you you're not walking right at this point. I say, thank you. Will, you. will you help me? I ask you to train me. I ask you to disciple me. I ask you to show me the way to walk. Will you show me where? Yes, brother. Right here and right here and right here. Thank you. I didn't know that. Thank you for helping me. I'm going to search that out. Now you begin to give yourself over to those who have the rule over you on the Lord like that and begin to accept the suffering and the discipline that goes with that training work of God and you begin to see many of the problems and the hassles of life for which we're constantly looking for solutions. We read books and we study situations and we, we go for counseling and we pray much. And no answer sometimes. Because simply we're not willing to undergo the training which would take us from that place where these things are a hassle to us till we come over this place and there's no hassle anymore at all. We say, no, we can handle that quite easily. It's no more of a problem to us. All right, now, I'm going to move over this quickly because this is something that you would have been told many, many times. Total reliance on the Holy Spirit, a must hear us with other ways God has given us. I make only this comment to you. Do not confuse what I'm saying here, any part of it, with any kind of an idea. When I was a young man growing up, I suppose I read all the books that everyone else reads today and read in those days, and I got into things like auto-suggestion and mental suggestion, and I remember one book I read, it said you should get in front of a mirror and um, get about eight inches away from the mirror and stare at your eyes like this in the mirror. Well, now, if you do that long enough without blinking, you're, everything begins to look real funny after a while. You know, you're just like, like this is a real odd-looking thing. And then you say, you look at it and say, you are going to sell today. Sell, 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 sell. You know, the idea is that's supposed to psych you up. Wow, oh, man, today I'm going to sell. No, no. But you know, don't. And that's supposed to last for eight hours or ten hours or whatever. You come home and say, oh, like this thing. All right, now that was done, and the other was you're supposed to say, day by day in every way I'm getting better and better. Day by day in every way I'm getting better and better. Day by day in every way I'm getting better and better. Day by day in every way I'm getting better and better. Day by day in every, oh no, that's the wrong thing. I didn't mean that. I might, uh, see, no, this is folly. There's a place for a kind of a positive attitude, and it can help you in little bitty ways and so forth. 
Folks, we're not talking about trying to psych yourself up to be a better salesman for the week so you can get a prize that perishes or you're trying to put on a, a little more charming exterior so when people come over to a party they say what a charming person Jim Durkin is. Notice how he now is able to do this and do this and so forth. So we're not talking about something like that. We're talking about something that's designed to transform your entire life, the way you look at things, the way you think about things. It speaks about learning to see and think and feel the same way that God sees and thinks and feels. See, that you become the expression on this earth, not perfectly, not in the same quantity or quality, but yet there is a quantity and quality of life that is the expression of the life of Jesus Christ. People can see love. They can see understanding, they can see compassion, they can see victory, they can see joy, they can see the life working in you and say, it's Jesus that produced that life. Because we've allowed ourselves to be trained by the Holy Spirit. Total reliance upon the Holy Spirit. We need proper fellowship with each other. I'm glad to see that you have continued here these four or five weeks. Thank God that you've listened to the Spirit of God. I believe God wanted you to hear these teachings. I believe that. Otherwise, I would not give them at all. I believe that you've grasped something real here in Faith Center, but I wish to press it on you ever more strongly. We need fellowship one with another. Hebrews 10:24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, means urging each other onward, say, come on, brother, let's go, here's my arm, here's my hand, let's move along. Exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the eighth point is something I call the bold confession, and that's learning to speak truth. What is truth? Pilate asked that question, and I think he never got an answer because he never asked the right question. There's a proper place, I suppose, in a very limited sense to say, what is the truth about this thing? But truth is never a what. Truth is a who. See, if truth is a what, then no matter how many facts you learn, you still could only say you know more facts, but you never know that you know the truth. But if truth is a person, you can know the person who is the truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God is truth, and in him is no lie, no darkness at all. Now, the bold confession is learning to speak truth even when I do not see outwardly within myself or in others the thing which God says is true. See, I do not know what is true. Let me ask you a question. Answer me by the upraised hand. How many of you believe that two and two is always four? Can I see your hand? How many aren't sure you should put up your hand because you think I'm going to pull a deal off on you? <laughs> yeah. Well, I am. Two and two is not always four. It's only four in the decimal system. There are all other kinds of systems of mathematics where two and two is not four at all. Some systems of mathematics where they don't even have a two in it, just zero and one. And there can be systems with all other kinds. You would look at it, two and two would not add up to four. Would add up to something else altogether. Two and two is not always four. So we say, well, two and two is four. That's the truth. Only in a very limited sense. Now, what then is truth in the total sense of the word. Well, Jesus is the truth, who is truth, and what he says is true, is true. All right, now, let's say that I get saved tonight, and I, I get up and I say, folks, I want to tell you what happened to me. But, oh, wow, we're so, I say, oh, I want to praise the Lord. Yes, let's do it together. And we're all praising the Lord. They say, you know what you are, Jim? What? You're a son of God. I'm a son of God. Yes, right here it says this. He gave you power to become the... Oh, I'm a son of God. Thank you, Lord. I used to be a son of Satan, the devil. Now I'm a son of God. And I'm praising the Lord for that. Okay, right? Because at this 
particular moment, I'm buoyed up. My soul and my mind, they're not arguing with this point yet. Oh, wow, we're having a good time here, you know. (laughs) But the next morning or in the middle of the night, something happens to me. I go home and I say to my family, you know what happened to me tonight? Have faith center. I heard a message about Jesus and I gave my heart to the Lord. And I'm a Christian. I'm saved. And they go, you made a shame of this home and a mockery of all the things that I've taught you. You've got that crutch that you're leaning on and I'm telling you we're not going to have that kind of thing in this home. You better. Next morning I get up. I sneak out of the house and Satan says, you're not saved. Yeah, I guess I'm not. You're not a Christian. No, I guess I'm not. You're not a son of God. No, I guess I'm not. Someone meets me. Hello, Jim. Son of God. I don't know, brother. I, just, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. You know, I was kind of happy there kind of last night, but I kind of think it's like at a football rally. We get all hepped up about something, but I, I really don't know about that. I don't know about that. Now, what is that person, Jim Durkin, going to have to do before that joy and assurance start being restored again? He's going to have to believe the word that God has spoken. He's going to have to confess the truth regardless of what he feels, and he's going to have to start acting upon that truth that God has given him to speak. See, what is the truth about me when I feel that I'm a son of God if I've given my life to Jesus? But somebody like to say, what is the truth if I've given my life to Jesus? What is the truth about me as far as being a son of God? Am I a son of God? Amen. Amen. I say, praise God, I'm a son of God. Now, the next morning, I do not feel good. I feel depressed. I feel lonely. I feel cast off. See, his soul is not at all trained. So, oh, wow, I'm going to have to go to the job. People are going to make fun of me. My own parents have made fun of me, or my own brothers and sisters have, or my friends have already done. When I go to the job, I know what they're going to do when I get there, so forth and so on. So you have all these pictures in your mind just like this. You go, oh, I'm not going to tell anybody about this at all. See? And so someone goes, uh, I hear you were at church last night. Yeah? Did you get baptized in water? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you know what? Um, no, I didn't do that. See? All right. Now, at some point, we're going to have to come to the place where we realize we're going to have to confess the truth regardless of what we feel like. Amen? Now, tell me, how many of you know you are sons of the living God? Can I see your hand? Now, is anyone here with a pain anywhere in their body? I see you raise your hand. Do you have a pain? Anyone else? You? Pain in your body? You say, oh, my stomach is hurting me. Therefore, I'm not a son of God. See, what's that got to do with it? I say, well, I guess it doesn't have anything to do with come to think of it. I should have nothing to do with my relationship to God. I have a pain in my stomach. All right, now I have a pain in my soul. My soul, the pain, the particular pain, is manifesting itself as depression, and I'm all depressed. Now I have to learn to do one of two things. Either I can say things like this. Why is God letting me feel like this? Man, I'm having a bum experience. Man, I feel like going out and blowing my brains out sometimes, I'll tell you. It's a rotten world. My wife doesn't understand me, or my husband doesn't understand me. My children, man, are growing up like, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just tell you, I just, I, I feel just, I feel rotten inside. See? All right, now, what's going to happen? Now, you do this. How's your body reacting to this? I can tell you, your body is just tightening up like this. You're just, and you start in a spiral. And the more you confess that which is not the truth, the more you go down in the spiral. Now it's time to stop and say to your soul and to the whole world, these angels and powers and principalities that are looking on the church to see the manifold wisdom of God demonstrated. They have been warring against your mind and hammering away at you like this, see, not possessing you, but putting thoughts and images and pictures and so forth. There's a place where you say, listen, I know the truth and the truth has set me free. I know that I'm a son of God redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I know that my hand is in the hand of Almighty God, and he's leading me. 
I know that he's filled me with his spirit. I know that his son lives within me. I know that the word of God is true. I know that my brothers and sisters love me and care for me. That's the truth, and that's what I'll walk in. That's what we're talking about when we say it's a bold confession. Why is it a bold confession? Because of the time you don't feel it and you don't see it. But you confess it anyhow because you believe that this word is the truth. See, sanctify them through thy truth. What is truth? Thy word is truth. See, okay. And then these last things, faith pictures, learning to see and think and feel as God does. Years ago, little illustration, years ago, I believe God revealed to me that one day there would be a publishing ministry connected with my own spoken ministry. And I thought, and rightly so, I should make whatever physical moves I could make toward that. So I wrote some articles. They weren't too good. And, uh, but it was the best I could do at the time, or maybe I could have done a little better, but I did what I thought was the best I could do there. And then I went and bought a printing press, and I printed these up, and I put them together with staples and started distributing them at the beginning of a publishing ministry. Never came to anything, just, you know, distribute them. People said, hmm, that's nice. And then they'd lay them aside, and that was the end of that. And then one time I wrote a letter, and was going to mail it out to everybody in Eureka and Humboldt County, and we mailed out maybe 8, 10, 12, 15,000 of them. And it was kind of a well-written letter saying, um, Dear friend, I finally decided to pay the debt that I owe to you. There's been so many years that I have not paid you, and now I'm going to pay you. And I thought that was very clever to really get him into the letter. And I said, well, who's this that owes me money? And, of course, I would say the debt is that I, I owe you the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, because so forth and so on, you know. So we mailed that out about 10,000 people. That didn't produce much results. So I thought, well, what about this publishing ministry, Lord? And I said, but I know the truth. God spoke to me, and one day, somewhere, we'll see it. But my job is to believe now. Lord, I believe that in your heart and in my heart, and forever settled in the heavens, that will come to pass. And I let it rest. I believe in making visions, producing visions, and so I would talk to different people about this from time to time. People ask me, what, what do you see in God? We say, well, I see this, and I see this, and I see this. Now, I say that quite apart from me attempting to create a publishing ministry, I've never written any books yet, even though that one out there says, by Jim Durkin with Dave Sapansky, it ought say, by Dave Sapansky with Jim Durkin, or something like that, because he did the real main work. He labored over it. He listened to tapes hours on end. He listened to written messages. I rather read them and he put them together and he counseled with me and then he wrote things down and he wrote it in the style that I would speak it. Many of them are direct quotes and so forth and so on. But he did a masterful job. Those brothers went out on their own and sisters went out on their own and worked with their hands and are still working with their hands to gather the money together to publish those books because they feel they should be published. That's in their heart. Now you see, here is a faith picture. Something that is in the heart of God. Not something dreamed up by me. If it's dreamed up by me, it will not come to pass in any real way. But something that's in the heart of God for me. And God one day says, Jim, come into the secret place of the Most High and I will open my heart to you. And I look at that and I say, Lord, You mean this is what you want for my life? It's what I want for your life. Believe it, walk in it, confess it, act upon it. Now the thing about a faith vision when you first get it, it's a very fragile thing, almost ephemeral. It can appear and then it's gone. It's almost like the vapor which is our life. It appears for a little bit and it's gone. You must seize it when it comes and you must feed that vision for a time. You must feed it because you believe it, you confess it, you act upon it. And after a time, I'll tell you, that faith vision will feed you. And it will sustain you. And it will encourage you. And it will carry you along. When I first saw the faith vision of the purpose and vision of God, that God wanted my life totally to glorify him, I had a whole different mentality toward what God wanted out of my life. And mainly what I wanted out of God. I wanted some things out of God. Now God said, here's what I want. And I saw that. And here was his vision, that the church should be one, and that church should go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, that the earth should be filled with the glory of God, and that his saints 
should demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God. And his saints should love one another. And his saints should manifest the life, the living and the dying of Jesus Christ. When I saw that, it was like a thing that appeared at all. And then I saw it again. I said, I'm going to feed that, Lord. I'm going to confess that. I'm going to speak about that. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, finally, that vision took root within me. And then it began to grow in every direction. And now there are times when pressures come upon me that for me, Maybe for another person, not so great, but for me, they're very great. And I'm almost pushed to the end of myself, and I almost at times feel like, oh, oh, that vision is there. That and others that God has given me. They sustain me. They hold me up. God puts them before and says, look at the vision and move on with it. Folks, you need to be filled with glorious visions. Not just, oh, well, my thing is just to earn money and be happy, or my thing is just go to school and get a diploma and get a job, or my thing is just to be a good person. No, you need to be filled with glorious visions. Visions that lift you up out of yourself and transform you so you see life from a whole different perspective. You're looking down on life from God's point of view and saying, yes, Lord, that's what you want for your church. That's what you want for me. This is what I'm moving towards, something glorious and wonderful. Instead of the place where many times Satan would have us reduced to that all that life is is just a kind of a treadmill to the grave like this. And we just kind of have no vision, no purpose, no direction much, just except be a good Christian and there you go walking and finally you find yourself at the end of your days and then it's all over and say, what was it all about? I tell you something. God's raising up a church in this end time, and you're part of that. Thank God. Whether you be toward the end of your life, or you're just in the early stages of your life. I tell you that he's putting vision in the hearts of God's people. He's transforming us. He's giving us something to believe for, and something to move toward, and something to say it can happen in our generation, in our time. And we're beginning to believe those things. And we're beginning to confess those things. And we're beginning to act upon those things. Now, if I leave you with just that one idea, that soul training, when you're all finished, or just even partway along, you're going to look back and say, thank God for every little bit of pain and suffering and every hassle that ever came my way, because it's prepared me to see that vision fulfilled in my life.